myself have had a devotion to Mary all my life. Every day of my life, I've asked for Mary's intervention with her son. She gets the best speeches, she gets the most agency, and she's remained the most popular of, of Christian saints. Uh, what, what's not to like? No suffering can have been as exquisite as the mother of Jesus standing at the foot of the cross. Well, welcome to the Ask Podcast. We're, we're back again with Greg Sheridan. And uh, Greg, good to see you again. You'll notice in my background, there is a uh, picture of my youngest daughter and it's her birthday today. So can you do me a favor? Could you wish her a happy birthday? Happy birthday to your youngest daughter. And I want to tell her it was my birthday yesterday, but I suspect I'm a good deal older than she. How old is Indeed. she today? Do you know this? I'm not even sure. How <laughs> terrible is that? <laughs> she's very young. She's our youngest and she's the joy of our life. And oh, um, Congratulations. You know, yeah, it's, it's, it, is, it is wonderful. Now, and, and, and happy birthday to you as well. I, I, I won't ask you how old you are, but Better you are not. clearly mature. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I shook hands with yeah. Moses. Yeah. Well, let, let, let's come on to Mary, because you've got a chapter on Mary. Now, when I saw the title, I, I thought, okay, the one area of disagreement I had with Pope Benedict, well, maybe not the one, but the main area was in, in terms of Mary. And you do get Protestants who overreact to the Catholic devotion to Mary. So I was really surprised at um, how fair and how balanced uh, you were in this. Now, you are obviously greatly taken by the character of Mary, first of all. We'll come to the theology in a minute, but do you want to say anything about that? Well, yes, thanks, David. I'm so glad you felt that way about that chapter. Um, absolutely. So, without theologizing it at all, uh, I, I myself had a devotion to Mary all my life, but um, reading the Gospels as a journalist, you're struck by Mary's agency and her self-confidence, her brilliance, mm -hmm. and her um, her decisiveness. So at every moment, she decides, in a sense, the course of history. You know, she says to the angel, be it done unto me, uh, let, let it be according to your will. So she, she accepts the commission to be the mother of Jesus. And then in a difficult circumstance, she doesn't sit around and lament her difficulties. She races off on her own. To her cousin Elizabeth, she proclaims Jesus. She's the first person in the gospel to know of Jesus. She's the first person to proclaim him. And then all through, uh, you see her agency. Um, so I'm very drawn to the uh, ancient church tradition that she was Luke's source. And reading Luke as a journalist, you think, well, where did Luke get all his scoops about the birth of Jesus and Mary's pregnancy and so on? So that seems to have come from Mary. And if so, then that showed great agency on her part. She controlled the, the narrative for history. And um, then there's her courage, you know. No suffering can have been as exquisite as the mother of Jesus standing at the foot of the cross, watching her son suffer every humiliation and torture uh, and calumny that you could imagine. But her fidelity, there she was at the foot of the cross. And as we know, most of the blokes were, you know, absent, uh, uh, you know, absent warriors at that point. Their courage had failed them. But Mary and, uh, 
and two other women and John were the only people at the at the foot of the cross. And of course, Mary is, although a figure of tragedy, so vibrant and positive a personality. I mean, the Magnificat, the Magnificat is the best speech in the gospel made by anyone other than Jesus. And it, it is one of the great speeches uh, in human history. So she gets the best speeches, she gets the most agency, and she's remained the most popular of, uh, of Christian saints. Uh, what, what's not the like, really, you know? <laughs> well, do you know, I was thinking about this when I was reading the chapter again, and I realized that there are kind of almost two extremes that Christians go to. On the one hand, there are those who have this image of Mary as almost as though she wasn't human. You know, that there's not a... Uh, you, you can't empathize with her because she's so distant, so you know, always got the halo around her and so on. And then there's the kind of very, very minimalist, oh, well, Mary doesn't matter that much, but she does matter. She's the Theotokos, you know, the, yes. the, the, the mother of God. Yes. And I think when I was reading the book, what really struck me and actually quite moved me was, you know, thinking of her as a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, because that's almost certainly, she'd have, she wouldn't have been much older than that, no. being told that she was going to you know give birth when she hadn't had sex you know put just putting yeah. it crudely and um that this was going to be the savior i mean that's that's absolutely mind-blowing and then you, you brought up this idea of her, her being interviewed by luke luke probably when she was around 60 um because luke's gospel is reckoned to be around 70 that's probably a bit late you know she could she could may well have still been alive but probably around 60 and i just have this wonderful thing of luke who who wasn't around with jesus but meeting the mother of jesus and interviewing her where did you get that idea from or is it just one you you thought of yourself uh no well uh david um i think it is an ancient tradition i think there is an ancient christian <laughs> tradition that mary was the source of luke so i think i read that somewhere but reading luke as a journalist uh, so I think Luke is the most journalistic of the evangelists. He tells you at the start, you know, I'm Luke. I've interviewed everybody. I've read all the accounts. He, you know, I've referred to him. He's the Bob Woodward of the early Jesus movement. You know, he he's sifted. He's spoken to all the sources. And of course, as someone who's written eight books myself, and you've written a lot of books, you don't have to interview someone and write the book the next day. You might interview someone mm -hmm. 10 years earlier and uh, and refer to your notes later on. Mm -hmm. So maybe Mary spoke to someone else and they spoke to Luke, but I love the idea that Mary spoke to Luke and she crafted the narrative. And of course, that goes to the authenticity of it too. You know, people say the Magnificat can't be true because it can't be what Mary really said because it, it you know, embodies prayers from the Old Testament. But of course, Mary as a, you know, Bible literate Jew would have had the Old Testament all the way running through her head all the time. And then she's telling Luke later on what she said. I mean, it's possible that her first word to Elizabeth was, oh my gosh, or Elizabeth, how lovely to see you or something. But she's giving Luke the significant speech that she made, which is the Magnificat. But I want to come back to the point you made about her being just a 15 or 16 year old vulnerable teenager. One of the things I love about the Gospels is the raw humanity of them. Uh, there's all the deep theology and everything, but the raw humanity of them is there everywhere. And, you know, being the most blessed person, having the most wonderful relationship with Jesus, being full of virtue, being utterly good, 
didn't protect anyone in the Gospels from the messiness and the difficulty and the suffering of life. It did give them wonderful rewards. But, you know, at first, Joseph couldn't understand how Mary was pregnant uh, and assumed, you know, he was going to divorce her quietly. So even though they weren't yet married, he was going to put her away quietly. So he presumed that she had had sex with someone else. And um, this must have been terribly distressing. Mary didn't know how it was all going to go. You know, the Archangel Gabriel didn't tell her how everything was going to proceed. So she proceeded with decisive action, response and spirit in the midst of all the messiness and uncertainty of everything. And that, of course, that's a key to the Christian response to life, of course. You know, you don't have all the answers uh, uh, straight away. Um, you just proceed. And then I think um, the other speculation I have, but this may be even too wild, is that um, we know on the cross, Jesus said to John, this is your mother. And he said to Mary, this is your son. And from that day forward, John took Mary into his home. And maybe the fabulous, high, brilliant view of Jesus that John has, of course, comes from John's own time with Jesus. Of course, of course, of course. But it's not a wild or unreasonable speculation to think that Mary and John would have had a bit to talk about in the years after Jesus' crucifixion, you know, and that maybe John's own view of Jesus was a little um, influenced by Mary. And of course, Mary is there in the Acts of the Apostles. We know that she was um, that she was with the with the apostles after after Jesus' death. But uh, you know, let me be clear: Mary as Luke's source, Mary as a conversant with John—that's just a speculation. I'm not. Uh, I'm not saying that's uh, that's a definite truth. Yeah, but it's joining dots because on the cross, when Jesus says to John, you know, your mother, you know, there there is a, a pretty well established tradition that uh, John went to Ephesus and Mary went with him and lived with him. Mm. And given that Luke was with Paul's travels, was in Ephesus and everything, it's almost inconceivable that they didn't meet. Absolutely, you know, absolutely, so. and, and of course, Luke. Without being too flippant about it, Luke was a doctor. So he was mm -hmm. a cosmopolitan doctor. Now, what Jewish mother doesn't like uh, a, a handsome young doctor? You know, um, <laughs> if Mary had had a daughter, Luke would have been perfect marriage material. And uh, so mm -hmm. she chose a, 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 a brilliantly educated, very devoted young physician to tell her story to. Uh, makes Everything about it just makes perfect human sense to me. It just seems... So mm -hmm. likely, uh, but I don't offer that as a biblical scholar. I just offer that as a journalist reading the reading the Gospels, you know. Yeah, but as a biblical scholar, I would say it fits. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not going to get sidetracked too much. But you said if she had a daughter, well, uh, the Bible does speak about Jesus's brothers and sisters. Now, I, I realize that there are, you know, there are people who say that that was. Um, I think you put this, you point this out as well that that was Joseph's children from a previous marriage or it's just a general reference because Mary remained a virgin. I mean, Christians disagree about that, and I don't really want to get into that, but I, 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 I think what you bring across incredibly well is the humanity and the vulnerability. And the other thing I want to say was this. You use the words, and it, and it can sound a bit cliched, um, you know, and I know you're just a sort of typical, uh, you know, left-wing you know, that's <laughs> woke, you know, yeah, new town person, you know. That's it. I'm often but, accused of that. <laughs> yeah, I thought you would be. You use this phrase, inversion of power. But that is the gospel, isn't it? That, 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 
the one of the things of, of the Magnificat is it, it's just quoting Old Testament, but you know, he's filled the hungry with good things. He's sent the rich away empty. He's brought rulers down their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. You know, it's just, Karl Marx couldn't have done better. <laughs> it's, it's a magnificent speech. And, um, uh, and uh, well, how does it end? My, what else does she say? My soul glorifies the Lord. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah. it's... All generations will call me blessed and so on, you know, and he's, he's, he's put out his arm. That's very much a reference to Old Testament prophets and, and the Psalms and so on, which he would, of course, have been steeped in, as you point out. Oh, yes. Well, every, every Christian I know who has been in distress prays through the words of the Bible. So why would yeah. anybody think it's unlikely that Mary, in this moment of transcendent meaning in, in human history, would not have had the words of the Psalms running through her head, just as Jesus did uh, himself on the cross. And he, he would have got them from, um, from Mary and Joseph. Um, when she says, all generations will call me blessed, um, I don't think there's any hint of vanity in all this, because Mary no. embraced a glorious road, but she embraced a road of tremendous uh, pain and uh, uh, self-sacrifice. But what she's saying is, she's so grateful. I mean, the other thing about the figures in the Gospels are they are so positive. Mary is is full of gratitude. You know, the things that strike you about the Magnificat is that she she accepts the commission of the Holy Spirit to be the mother of Jesus. She is incredibly self confident and bold. She's grateful to the Lord for the for the. For the riches that he has given her and that he is giving her, and she's full of uh, she's full of action. She's um, she's up and at him, you know. I mean, next minute she's off on her own to see Elizabeth for three months. I mean, is the situation resolved with Joseph before she goes off? Has he had his visit by the angel uh, in a dream yet? Probably not. So she heads off, um, travels as far as the Gospels tell us on her own. It's no mean thing for a, for a woman or a girl to travel on their own in. Uh, in the ancient world, um, her uh, her personality. So I think what you said earlier, David, both the people who are very devoted to Mary and the people who think Mary has been overboomed tend to kind of miss some of her humanity and her agency. That's why yeah. I keep coming back to the idea. It's great just to read the Gospels as you'd read a book, you know, to read in however many sittings it takes. Um, and maybe you don't read all four Gospels straight away. Maybe you read one Gospel and then an epistle and come back to the go second Gospel and so on. But if you read it like that, the humanity of Mary is uh, is fantastic. I think. I, I agree, and you know, and I think where you know I'm I'm coming at this from is seeing Mary like that, but also seeing her as I mean, I do love the word Theotokos, as the early church fathers did. Yes, here's a girl who's the mother of Jesus. You know, there's no no one is ever ever going to be able to claim that. That's right. You know, it's and all generations will call her blessed. It's interesting as well when you talk about. Um, the suffering. I want to read this quote, one, one, one of your quote to you. Well, it's not really for you. It's for the benefit of the listeners who I hope will get your book, by the way, because <laughs> it's just worth it. But um, Mary, blessed, had many difficulties in life. You know, the the death. I mean, we know we know that Joseph died. Um, the the pain i mean you know as a as a parent when your child goes through suffering 
you really, really feel it. And I think a mother particularly, I mean, I don't wish to be sexist, fathers feel it too, but I think there's a, there's a bond often um, with the mother and an empathy. And, you know, you say this about her suffering, even the most magnificent faith, the deepest union with God, the most robust and deep-seated and genuine virtue provides no magic pathway out of the intractable messiness of life. Indeed, being faithful to the truth can sometimes make life much messier than it would be otherwise. No one in the New Testament and no Christian any time that I've ever heard of has a magic life free of pain and difficulty, confusion and heartache. The message of the cross is not that Jesus abolishes all pain for us, but that he stays in solidarity with us in pain, that he takes our pain on himself, and that finally he redeems pain and conquers suffering and death. He gives us a way of dealing with the pain that is an inevitable part of life. I love that. Thank you for that. Do you want to say anything about it? Oh, well, David, I'm, I'm so pleased you liked it. Um, uh, I'm, I'm so pleased you liked it. You know, um, I did read, uh, I was reading Cardinal Pell's prison diaries, and uh, one thing he said was, He'd always been a bit scared of the mystics because of how much they suffered. And he'd always been aware that he'd had a long and comfortable and happy life. And he used to try to find minor penances in the hope that this would put off the major suffering, so to speak. Then he had, a, you know, 14 months in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And um, I think uh, I think no life is perfect from inside. Life can look great from a distance. But the person living it, it's always complex and full of challenges and, and very difficult, as well as, as well as great fun, you know. <laughs> but, you know, I've been just working through the book of Job again. I do it every day for five minutes at 11 o'clock on YouTube. And it was my wife's idea to do it. And what's astounded me is every single day, people who are in pain contact me to say, we didn't know this was in the Bible. This is great. This is where we're at. And I feel that Mary, when we talk about the humanity of Mary and the suffering of Mary, rather than demean what happened to her, I think it elevates what happened to her. And I think it, in the same way as we talk about the humanity of Christ and and, and so on. And so I think it, that is very, very helpful. Can I just, I, I want to wind back a little bit because um, I missed out something that I wanted to, to look at. You were talking about Luke interviewing Mary and being with John and so on. And there are people saying, no, no, that takes away from the inspiration of the scriptures. But um, I, I, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of this phrase, but the, the Bible was not inspired with the exception possibly of the Ten Commandments in this, like human beings were robots who are, you know, who are just fed a document or, you know, have voices come in their heads. What we mean by the inspiration of the scriptures is what's called organic inspiration. So sources are used, um, personality comes through, and yet it's still the word of God. In other words, God used human beings as pens. And I thought, again, what you said about Luke was was fits in with that. A any thoughts on that? Well, David, I'm so pleased to say that. I, I completely agree with that. So I, I completely believe that the Bible is the word of God and that there's nothing in the Bible which is a lie, nothing is untrue in the way that it was meant, that there are no errors in it. Uh, I believe that everything we need to know about Jesus is in, is, in the, is in the New Testament. But at the same time, I passionately believe that it was produced by the efforts of flesh and blood human beings. Uh, so Luke tells us that he went and he read everything and he interviewed everybody and so on. John tells us that if he had enough time 
you could write all the books in the world and not contain everything of Jesus. I mean, um, there are religious traditions, and I wouldn't disparage them, which hold that God dictated the scripture to the particular, you know, individual. And I'm not, ha I'm not having a shot at any other religious tradition. But Christianity doesn't hold that. Christianity holds, as you explained it better than me, that the Bible is, that the New Testament is inspired and it's true and it's free from error. But that, you know, it didn't come by magic without struggle. I mean, why did Jesus die and rise again when he could have just sort of waved a wand and made everything perfect? Why does God give us free will? That's, that, that is in the nature of the human condition, you know, that, uh, that there is struggle and that you can, um, that you can, uh, with God's help, uh, do good as the as the evangelists did. Um, I also love. I mean, this is a bit off subject, but I also love the ancient church tradition that Peter was the was the chief source for Mark, because um, there are all these episodes in Mark which are tremendously embarrassing for Peter if he's a politician. You know, he denies Jesus three times. He falls asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you can just imagine Peter saying to Mark, "I want you to put that in because I want everyone to know." We were pretty hopeless until Jesus raised us up. You know, it's not as if he picked the world's best eleven, the world's best twelve in the history of the. You know, he went on a on a management consultant course and picked the people with the greatest degree of courage and the greatest quotient of intelligence or anything. We were we were um, sanctified and raised up by Jesus' faith in us, by Jesus' love for us. And uh, I, um, as I say to you, it's a bit of a constant theme of mine that this kind of uh, complex cross-grained humanity of all the figures in the in the gospel is um is something we can we can marginally lose sight of uh you know so that's why i think it's great to as i say to read a whole book at a time yeah do you know and, the, and what i love about this and forgive me i'm going to take a sidetrack as well but i think peter you're right about peter I, i'm 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 sure that the Gospel of Mark is the Gospel of Peter. I mean, that's why it's accepted as apostolic, because Mark wasn't an apostle. Mm. So there's no question that the early church accepted it as apostolic because they believed it to be from Peter. And I think the evidence is pretty overwhelming for all of that. But what you're talking about there is something that's profoundly important to me, that in the church today, very often, we tend to um, programize everything and almost dehumanize things. It's though... You know, we, we, we're, it's, it's as though we've taken our technology and turned Christianity into a series of emojis or memes or, you know, sound bites. Whereas in reality, what you're describing, particularly in this chapter on Mary, is the mess, just the glorious mess of humanity that God comes into in order to redeem. So let me let me go to one incident that I've I've always found absolutely intriguing. Um, before we finish, and that is the story of the first miracle in John's gospel of Jesus turning water into wine. Why did you mention that? Well, of course, I am an Irishman, uh, um, uh, David, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've always thought that's a very good use for water. No, 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 that's a flippant. I apologize yeah, yeah. for that remark. But um, so that that miracle and also Mary um, finding Jesus in the temple when he disappears. These are two wonderful scenes. Now, they're full of theological importance, and I accept all the theology about them, but I just absolutely love the human interaction. Now, at the wedding feast of Cana, the hosts run out of wine. Mary says to Jesus, look, 
Our friends, the hosts, have run out of wine. Jesus says, well, what's that got to do with me? And for that matter, what's it got to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Leave me alone. And so Mary says, okay, well, I'll say nothing further about it. It's up to you. You know what your mother wants, but that's okay. It's up to you. And she says to the servants, just do as he says. Now, I thoroughly get the theology of this miracle. This miracle does not uh, illustrate Mary's power. The miracle is Jesus' miracle. Mary simply says, gives the servants the advice she gives to the whole human race. Do whatever he says. Just do whatever he says. This is a wonderful mother-son moment, you know. Uh, Jesus is not really planning to commence his ministry there, but all the way through the gospel, all the way through the gospels, Jesus rewards persistent prayer. If you pray persistently, he, um, he rewards, he answers that prayer. And which, of, which son has not had an encounter like that with a mother, where the mother asks you to do something and you think it's a bit lame, and you're not going to do it. And then you think, well, you know, at the end of the day, she's mum, you know, I should do something for her. <laughs> and Jesus is a good Jewish son and he cares about his mother and so on. And I think that's a wonderful human moment. And if I can digress for a second, the other moment that I loved is where they lose Jesus in the temple and they go back a day or so later uh, to Jerusalem. They spend three days, Joseph and Mary, looking for him. And Mary says to him, why have you treated your father and me like this? Now, David, if I can be a little personal here, uh, my three sons uh, come from my, uh, my wife's first marriage. So they're my, my uh, stepsons, I guess. But they're my sons. They're absolutely my sons. Mary says to Jesus, your father and I have been worried, sick, looking for you. She doesn't say you're appointed temporary guardian. Your significant, <laughs> your your foster relation. She says, "Your father and I." Now, of course, Jesus' father is God in heaven, but for earthly matters, Joseph was his father, and he was obedient. He grew in wisdom, age, and grace under Joseph and Mary. And the gospel tells us he went back with Joseph and Mary, and he was obedient to them. And uh, it's the only time in the whole gospel where someone gives a slight reproof to Jesus and part of his sympathy is slightly with the reprover you know which parent wouldn't be worried about their kid mm -hmm. that's not to say Jesus did anything wrong obviously Jesus is incapable of doing anything wrong but the the, the cross-grained humanity of this moment is fantastic and then the final reflection I'd offer you David is the wonderful outsiderdom of Christianity so Jesus Mary and Joseph they're the holy family they're the ideal family through all history, we've regarded them as the ideal family. For a time, Mary is an unwed, pregnant teenager. Joseph mm -hmm. is a foster father. For a time, mm -hmm. they're refugees fleeing across a border. This is, they're a blended family. Joseph has no biological relationship uh, with his son. Mm -hmm. And all through the scripture, of course, Adoption and foster relationships are recognised as completely authentic and genuine. The, the question is not, are you biologically related to your offspring? The question is, do you love them? And uh, mm -hmm. so I'm not wrapping this up in a neat formula, but I'm just saying I, I relished, I, I joyed in, I loved the, the humanity of, of this, you know, the humanity of these encounters. They rang absolutely true to me. They had no no sense of artifice uh, about them at all. In fact, if you were making it up later, you'd have Mary 
pronouncing some theological formula when she met Jesus in the temple. She, you wouldn't have her saying, where have you been? What have you been doing? You know, why, why yeah. put your father and me through this? So I don't, I don't have a nice formula for it, but I just, I just love those episodes. I love them too. And I love the one where Mary and his brothers and sisters, you know, basically go and collect him because they think he's going a bit mad, you know, as well. So, and again, it's just, all of that is just so human, but it's the divine working through the human. Uh, there was a charismatic church I knew where, uh, you know, it's very open and very lively. And this man stood up and he wasn't well, you know, he was mentally not well. And he stood up and he started shouting, I am Jesus. And I've got, you know, and people were thinking, how are they going to cope with this? And this woman had the presence of mind to stand up and say, I'm Mary and I'm your mother. And I'm telling you to sit down and be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Did you do that? Isn't that brilliant? Yeah. <laughs> that's Isn't that absolutely brilliant. That's a great That's a, just story. a great that's a great story. And, you know, that thing about Jesus at the temple, there's a little bit, you know, how, how, how does Mary give Jesus a row? Well, of course she does. Yeah. Because, one, she herself wasn't absolutely perfect, and so maybe she would have got some things wrong. But also she would be expressing concern and worry and uh, at other times, you know, stop playing with that saw. And, yeah. you know, and he, he learned from what he suffered. Listen, I want to go. I mean, I know we're going to have to go, but I want to go to your final page. You talk about Dominion, Tom Holland's wonderful book. It's, I think it's absolutely, absolutely brilliant. Yes, me too. But he says this, Mary could embody for even the humblest and most unlettered peasant all the numerous paradoxes that lie at the heart of the Christian faith. It needed no years of study in a university, no familiarity with the works of Aristotle to comprehend the devotion that a mother might feel to her son. I must admit, I, I did not highlight that one in his book. I don't know how I missed it, but it's a wonderful quote. Um, and you say that you are with the peasants on that one. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. It's a funny thing, David. So um, you and I, we're writers. Uh, we make our living thinking about things. And, uh, you know, you know, we might even be accused of being intellectuals or something. But, but for me, faith has never been fundamentally an intellectual proposition. I mean, I believe it's true. I believe it's intellectually compelling, all of that. But um, it, it somehow or other it is visceral. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, so one of the joys of writing this book was to spend more time than I usually do in the New Testament. So, of course, so you, you've been very kind about these ecumenical issues, David, and I, I try to write from the mere Christianity consensus and not take a view on any denominational issues. But I myself have had a devotion to Mary all my life. So I'd say honestly, you know, I hope people don't turn off at this point. Every day of my life, I've asked for Mary's intervention with her son. And um, just as every evangelical friend I've met always says, let's pray together and they pray for me and I pray for them and so on. And so Mary has been a presence in my life. I mean, we, we don't worship Mary or anything. We worship God. We worship Jesus and so on. But, but the human figure of Mary is... Uh, is there when when I first heard the Beatles songs "Let It Be," I thought it was about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and mm -hmm. I smiled with pleasure and pride that they would write such a song. Now, Mark, Paul McCartney says the song was actually about his own mother, but he's very happy for it to be interpreted as being about Mary, the mother of Jesus. He's he's sensible, he's smart, he's good that way, Paul McCartney, and um, mm -hmm. and you know, Chesterton, our favourite author, said Mary, in a sense, introduces the principle of chivalry. Into, into religion. 
Chivalry is a terribly unfashionable word. If I haven't turned off all, all watchers by now, uh, this word chivalry will turn them off forever. But, you know, I've got three sons and I've tried to raise them with an idea that they have certain obligations to, to women and girls because they're men. And uh, mm -hmm. the person of Mary just embodies so much wisdom and so much life and so much sympathy. I don't see why we should cut ourselves off from wisdom and life and sympathy uh, as if our lives are, are overburdened with those uh, with those qualities. Do you know this? I know you're a journalist, but you'd be a brilliant politician because um, you've you've brought up something controversial just when I'm going to finish. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's very clever. Very well done. Um, you know, I you know, I, I wouldn't pray to Mary, but I don't freak out at the fact that you do. Uh, uh, and you know we know that prayer is ultimately to God anyway. Of course, of course. And I guess your your point about how you know some we might ask someone else to pray for us, but you know I'm gonna uh, strangely enough I didn't expect to finish here. I'm going to finish with chivalry because um, we we are doing this fortnightly. So I there have people said you know can you not do something direct? So I have. So I've had Gerald Bray who's written a. Uh, a book on the history of Christianity in Britain and Ireland, which is actually absolutely brilliant. And so I interviewed him uh, this week, and um, I'm going to do him, do him again. And one of the things in his books that he talks about this, we talked about violence associated with Christianity, and he said, actually, what Christianity did in the in medieval period and the early modern period and the Dark Ages, as they were called falsely, I think, um, he said it introduced chivalry. And, you know, he was talking about the tales of King Arthur and all this kind of stuff. He said, none of that is pagan. All this comes, and it comes from a view of Mary and how you treat women and everything else. So you, you brought that up. So, Greg, once again, thank you so much. I am, I, I'm deeply appreciative of this. And I loved reading the chapter again and looking at it. And we are coming up to Christmas, so it's good to think about Mary. And we're also, I think the next time before Christmas, we're going to be looking at angels. And that will be a really interesting one. Thanks. Hello. Thanks so much, David. I enjoy these chats more than uh, more than you can possibly imagine. So um, whether other people find them interesting, I don't know, but I find them fascinating and I learn so much from you and, uh, you know, it's great. So thank you very much indeed. No, I appreciate it, mate. And we will see how else you have me coming. I'm calling you mate. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, but I appreciate mate and uh, no worries, as they say, and we'll, we'll be back again in a fortnight's time. Bye. Thanks, David.